Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast, where we help you build your events empire by building profitable events while having fun at the same time. So we've had a bit of a break over the summer, really since the start of the year, you know. I was really busy with my company Apps Events during the pandemic. Uh, I talked about that on the last call with James. You know, we, we transitioned to doing a lot of work for Google, running a lot of online events, doing different stuff. Um, so I was just really busy, but I've really missed doing the events podcast and we're still getting great views. We're actually a top 10% of all podcasts in the world still, which is amazing as it's a very niche thing. But I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, if you enjoy the podcast, please get in touch with me. Like uh, most people don't give me any feedback and, and getting feedback really encourages me to make more episodes. Just email me at dan at appsevents.com, D-A-N at appsevents.com. Even better, if you can give us a review, uh, anywhere you listen to the podcast, please stop right now in iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Cast, wherever you are, and please leave us a review if possible, five stars, of course, would be great. Back to the podcast. So we, we really focus on helping event entrepreneurs run amazing events, and that could be people who run events companies, but also just as many people, maybe more, are entrepreneurs who just run events as part of their business. You know, they might run events to promote something else, they might run meetups, they might run one big conference a year. This is the kind of people I want to help, you know, because I, I run events myself. So, you know, this podcast is kind of like therapy for me where I get help and assistance on how to run the event. So please, again, leave some feedback. Uh, and secondly, obviously there's a lot of costs associating with this podcast. I've got two people who help me out with editing and graphics and everything else. So if you're a sponsor, possibly you're a software company, sells to the event industry, then and you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, like I said, it's a top 10% podcast, please get in touch. Uh, we'd love to talk to you, danapsevents.com, and it'd be great to talk. So thank you very much. Uh, and now on to the interview. Okay, hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Hallam. He is um, a former international school educator and he is author of two books that I know about. One is called The Millionaire Teacher and one is called The Millionaire Expat. And um, I've actually heard about both books for a while, but my wife recently bought me The Millionaire Expat for my birthday. And I'm a huge fan of like, um, I've always, not always, but like last 10 years I've been into investing and, you know, travel is a big part of mine. So she kind of figured it was a it was a great book for me, you know, maybe even up there with like the, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but, uh, yeah, Andrew, welcome to the podcast and uh, great, great to be talking. Yeah. Thanks very much, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we had a lot of technical issues going, going in. I'm out in, I'm out in Bahrain at the moment. Uh, I think since the last time I spoke on the podcast, I was in London. Now I'm back again. So a lot of travel. Andrew, I know you're in, you're in Panama right now. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in the mountains of Panama, a place called Boquete. So it's just at the base of the uh, of Volcan Baru, which is a, a volcano. Um, and at the tip of it is the only place, I mean, you can walk to it, to the, to the peak. It's the only place on Earth that you can see the Atlantic and the Pacific. So it's a pretty cool spot. Yeah, like I was mentioning, I've been on my honeymoon to Panama, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It's a great city. It's not as not as touristy as, as the countries around it, I think. And uh, yeah, I really had very, very fond memories of it. But are you, um, I guess we're going to take a step back in a minute, but are you, are you location independent now? Are you a... We've, we've been location independent for eight years. So we yeah. were working at Singapore American School until 2014. And we thought we'd take a year off just to travel. And then we realized that we would need to get a job uh, or start looking for a job partway through that one year 
self-imposed sabbatical. And that wouldn't be fun. So we thought, well, let's do two years and then two extended to three, which is extended to eight. So we've really spent a lot of time, uh, yeah, traveling. COVID was one of those things that ended up rooting everybody. And we, at the time, we were actually cycling around Costa Rica on our tandem. And yep. then we went to visit some visit family in Victoria, British Columbia, where we just happened to have like a vacant condo that we had fully furnished that we just kept without renters. And we're right. so, we're so glad we did because, you know, when COVID hit, that's where we were strapped. Um, we had to stay there for about a year, but it did give me an opportunity to write, um, to write another book. And so I ended up writing a book oh, wow. called Balance. And, uh, and I did a third edition of Millionaire Expat as well. So both of those books, both Balance and then uh, Millionaire Expat were published January 18th of 2022. Fantastic. Well, look, we'll get onto the books and to the investing in a second. I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, to, to, to come back to what you said, I mean, I've, I've been location independent for about on and off for like 25 years. So I'm kind of, I was kind of early in this, you know, I was, um, uh, I used to be an IT contractor originally. I was, I became a specialist in this system called SAP and I used to take contracts. I take like three to six month contracts, take some time off, travel around. That was before, you know, there was anything like digital nomads or anything, you know, and then, and then, uh, I worked for a college for a while, as I mentioned earlier. Then when I started this business, I set it up from day one, but it was going to be location independent. I mean, there's certain times I have to be in a certain place Like we run some conferences at schools. We, you know, like certain things like in London, I was last week, but in between I, I made it so that I can be anywhere. And that's definitely, I think it's, um, I'm a huge fan of that philosophy. Even if you don't want to travel, it's good to have that, you know, location independence and be able and have the ability to move around and not always stay in the same place. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle that of course our, our parents could only have really dreamed of. I mean, it was, exactly. the, internet that, it was the internet that allowed it to happen. And then it, it is best to, to establish if people are interested in doing something like this, to establish some kind of tax jurisdiction. So you actually have a place yep. that you, that you do have official residency in rather than just, you know, floating around and not really being a resident anywhere, just in case it's always best to have a tax, uh, tax jurisdiction. Yeah, I'm not doing that very sensibly because I'm, I'm still officially tax resident in the Czech Republic. So I'm paying kind of European Union taxes and things. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll get onto that later. I was thinking of maybe just getting to buy a residency or, or something. But um, I want to talk about your background because obviously you, you, you mentioned you worked for an international school. Um, can you tell us what, what your background was like leading up to that? Like, what did you do like after college and, and what's your career? Well, I trained to be a high school physical education and English teacher. And so I never really did teach physical education, but I did teach high school English. So I taught, yep. well, both middle school and high school English on Vancouver Island. And then I took a year off. It was a deferred salary leave, something our school district offered, which allowed us to, to put, uh, they, could, they could keep a percentage of our income and then we could yep. have time off at the end of that. Uh, and they would guarantee us our jobs back. So I did what they called a three-in-one. So it was quite aggressive where the school district kept 33% of my gross annual income for three years. Right. And at the end of the third year, uh, I was given a full year off, essentially with Fantastic. full pay. So they pay it back to you on a monthly basis with interest. And so yeah. I would be then spending time just traveling, seeing as much of the world as I could. And then uh, as it turned out, the for, a former principal of the school that I, that I was at ended up getting a job as a, as a deputy at uh, deputy principal at Singapore American school. So he sent me right. an email while I was in Morocco 
and he said, uh, this place is, is pretty cool. This whole international teaching gig is, is a pretty neat scene. And so I, uh, he, you know, I flew to Boston, met the superintendent. I remember like having a nice clam chowder with the guy and uh, mm. he ended up hiring me. So I, I, that was the beginning of spending the 12 years in, at Singapore American school, which was awesome. I loved it. And had you, did you know about international schools before? Cause I mean, it's one of those things I didn't even really know about this world existed after university. I would have gone to work for a school, you know, was it something you were aware of or was it just this one coincidental meeting that got you into it? Oh, I was definitely aware of it. Um, and people had, I'd spoken to people who had gone, but they'd only gone for a year or two years. I didn't realize how, how great some of the schools really could be. And so yeah. most of the people that I'd know would go off, they would teach a school for just a short period of time. They loved the experience, but either there wasn't any money in it or there wasn't a lot of professional development for them doing it. And I, so in terms of like the top tier schools and what they could offer in terms of professional development, in terms of the, like the financial package, I was completely unaware of that. So, and I figured that I'd go to Singapore for two years and, you know, live out that workout, finish that first contract. And then I would come back to Canada. And right. after about two months, I'm like, no way, this is, this place is fantastic. I don't have class sizes of 30 plus students uh, at the school I was at. People were complaining if their class size was 22. And, yeah. and I'm thinking, wow. Yeah. Um, likewise, yeah, there was just fabulous support. And I guess, again, not every international school is like that. They run a gamut, as you and I both know between uh, you know how well they're funded uh, how well teachers are supported but there's some amazing schools out there so many of them definitely yeah it's interesting because uh, we had a, an interview of a guy called Demi Machin a really interesting podcast he's an expert in kind of the business of international schools and we talked about how the sector has changed you know since originally when it was you know 30 years ago plus it was children of expats and and and, dipl and diplomats etc so now We've got a situation where close to 90% of international schools are for profit uh, and, and, and it's a straight business sector, you know, and then, but you still have what, like what you've alluded to, like the, the tier one schools, which is kind of this unofficial ranking of schools, which are kind of a traditional international school where you can get good packages, et cetera. And uh, I think like, but there's, and there's a full spectrum, isn't there? Like you said, I mean, there's all kinds of deals available for, and some of them terrible, some, some quite good and some, and some really good at schools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so you just worked for one school, you, Singapore, you, after Canada, you, you stayed there and you just, you enjoyed it. And so you, that, that was your teaching, international school teaching experience, was it? Yeah, so far I stayed just at that one. And my wife worked at a few different schools uh, and we ended up meeting actually in Singapore. So she's an American. And so she had taught at, uh, at HKS she had, in Hong Kong. She had taught in, uh, yeah. in Ecuador. Uh, she had lived in Spain for a bit. And, uh, and then she was actually at Singapore American school for, for a total of 15 years. So wow. yeah, we both, we both really enjoyed it. It's a great place to be. And we have plenty of friends who are still there from when we first arrived. So yeah, there, it's yeah. not unheard of for teachers there to stay, uh, to stay 30 years. Yeah. And there's definitely some people who do that at schools, isn't there? And there's some people are like a lot of people like to do the three to five years in one place and move around. Actually, John Mixon's managed to join us. So I'm going to add him, add him to the stream in a second. Uh, John, can you hear us? Yeah. Hi, guys. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. John, this is Andrew Hallam. We're, we're talking about, obviously, you know about his book, The Millionaire Teacher. So look, Andrew, let, let, let's jump back in. So we were talking about, about Singapore. Um, so obviously, you know, it was, it was a good school and, and you, you were obviously making good money. And, and 
like what what prompted you to to think about i think your first book was the millionaire teacher is that, is that right yeah that's right like, like like where did it come from did you write the book when you were still teaching and what did you always like i'm, I'm someone who has a book in me like what was the what was the origin of, of the book so around the same time i started teaching like when i began my teaching career i also began a writing career and so right. I call it a writing career, but I was just publishing odd articles in, uh, in financial magazines. I would write pieces for the Golden Mail, which is Canada's national newspaper. So they were course, yeah. investment related articles. And I was really, really, really fortunate that when I was 19, I happened to meet a millionaire who was a, a mechanic, like a self-made millionaire who had two kids, he was a single dad, and, and he was a motor mechanic. I, he worked on uh, diesel buses and he inspired me to start figuring out how compound interest worked and how as a young person I could use it to my advantage so I was only 19 so I started to invest and I really wanted to share this and I guess that's the whole teacher the educator and all of us when we when we learn something that we think will be helpful we want to share it so I was yeah. writing for magazines I was writing for the newspaper I took my teaching job and occasionally you know I'd take my English class and and divert things a little bit and start maybe divert things a lot and start talking about i'm going to show you something here that you may or may not have seen in your mathematics class but it's so so important and so i would talk to the students a little bit about compound interest and then when i moved to singapore things things changed really dramatically for me in terms of my motivation to try to teach people this because i was in canada in a public school system and truthfully, it's pretty easy for a public school teacher in Canada not to save a penny and retire really quite well. All they need to do is pay off their home eventually, stay out of credit card debt, other consumer debt, and the defined benefit pension will give them, depending on how long they're, they're, they're teaching in the district, up to 70% of the average of their best five years of income. Now sure. that 70% ends up to be about maybe about 85% of their net income. You know, so after yeah. taxes, because they're in a slightly lower tax bracket. So when they retire, uh, and so, you know, I didn't really feel the need to have to speak to my fellow teachers when I was in Canada, uh, in the public school system, because whether they saved money or not, didn't really matter a heck of a lot. But when I moved overseas and I'd meet Americans who couldn't contribute to social security because they lived abroad, they had to invest money for their future because there was no defined benefit pension scheme for international teachers. That coupled with the fact that there wasn't a, a, a strong realization of this. And so I felt like in many cases, I realized, wow, I really need to, uh, to do what I can to explain that teachers that move overseas take a massive financial risk because they're not contributing to their home country social platforms. And so as a result of that, they're not going to get that back. So they could, you know, spend an entire career working overseas, save, even save more money than their friends back home. But upon retirement, uh, have far less, far, far less disposable income with which to live. So I really wanted to be able to share this. Uh, so I wrote Millionaire Teacher. And, and in part, at our school, there, was a, there were some financial services firms that would come in and would encourage the teachers to save money and help them invest money. And they had relatively high fees. So one charged a 5.75% commission upfront for everything that was invested. Uh, then they also had the expense ratios on the mutual funds themselves, which were about 10 times higher than the fees that I was paying. And I thought, wow, I've got to somehow be able to, to teach people this. 
And so, you know, I was, I was holding these, you know, in school seminars and eventually decided that I would write the book Millionaire Teacher, not just for them, but I realized that it could be quite broad and it was, it ended up doing really, really well in the United States, for example. So uh, for a while there, it was number one, uh, with the best-selling book, business investment and uh, stock market categories for all three of those categories in the United States. So it ended up doing really well. Um, but then there were these things that started to occur where people would send me emails and they would say, I'm a Brit. I live in Dubai. Just read your book. How do I, how do I follow that investment scheme here in Dubai? Uh, people would email me, tell me I'm, I'm a Canadian. I live in Egypt. How do I do it? And I became aware then of the really toxic financial products that were being sold to expatriates overseas. And, and to my, to my shock, a lot of them were being, a lot of these financial services firms were actually being invited into the schools by yes. the administration. And the administrations didn't really know, um, you know, a, a good investment firm from a bad investment firm. When I say bad investment firms, these are firms that had a fee structure and a commission-based structure that wasn't even legal, wouldn't even be legal in a place like Canada, for example. Based on how the commissions are paid out, they're not legal in the UK, they're not legal in Australia, but they're legal on the international teaching scene. And so I had a really, really hard time uh, recognizing that, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a mountain here that I have to try to somehow move and I have to try to educate uh, teachers and administrators and say, you know, don't invite financial services companies into your school. I was trying to say, this is something that you probably shouldn't be doing at all because you, you, you can't vet them. And these things, these commission-based uh, products end up with such massive uh, internal fees that you virtually cannot beat inflation with these products over an investment lifetime. Like the odds of doing that are incredibly slim. So that was what led me to write that book, uh, Millionaire Expat. I even started to write one just for administrators, like international administrators. And I realized, you know, obviously my, my target audience was small. I wouldn't sell a lot, it'd be a lot of work. But I did start to write that book and then eventually abandoned that and figured, no, um, enough of them. My hope is that enough of them will read Millionaire Expat and then uh, people will become more financially educated and be able to help themselves. You, you know what I find fascinating about these financial advisor type people? Like, cause I, I've come across a lot. I've lived the expat life most of my adult life, you know, and I've played rugby with a lot of things in Prague. And most of the time, I, I meet these guys and I'm like, I can't believe somebody would buy something from them. They're just salespeople. They, I, even the financial knowledge I've got, which isn't ex extensive, I know so much more. I could put, put holes in the arguments in 10 seconds, but people do fall for it. And it really is falling for it. It's, it's not like, you know, it is, they know it's, it's not a good investment that people deliver. But, but I think the thing to realize is when a you're, so for example, I know exactly what you're talking about because that happened to me in my second international school. So you, you go to an international school, uh, you get some type of pension or not, or they give you $500 and you match it, whatever it might be, whatever permutation you have. And the school says, oh, we have these financial services coming in. Mm. Your naive initial gut feeling is, well, I trust them. If it's a school, it must be a reputable company. And I think schools, as Andrew says, don't do their homework or they have kind of a more of a distant relationship and say, well, we're providing the service. We don't take any responsibility, but we're going to let them in the staff room and come back every year and have these meetings. 
The other issue you face is if you move from one continent to another, from one type of school to the other, so often those pension plans aren't transferable. So especially if you have dual passports or your wife is one country and you're another country, that becomes very difficult to navigate. And what happens, I think so often, correct me wrong, is these companies smell that and they kind of create these packages that you're like, wow, that kind of solves all my problems. It's fine for the moment, but when you move on or return to your country or you go to a country and you have to do your taxes for the first time, then this all quickly crumbles and it becomes, and I've seen, and people really deal with some very, very uh, heart-wrenching experiences coming to terms with this process because of navigating different countries, different pension plans, different approaches of schools, uh, some schools tie their pension plans to, say, an American pension plan, but you're British or you're not. And so, Andrew, I can't agree with you more that this, that unfortunately, this is really a, a, a kind of not dark side, but kind of a sad side of many international school teachers that come into this with a good heart and a bit of naivety because they're already struggling trying to deal with being abroad and, and there are just so many things to juggle and nothing's better than if somebody says don't worry i'll take care of your money and you'll make money and you might not look into the small print so i, I can't echo enough what you're saying and, and i think these books that you've written are just fantastic mm, thank you john yeah. So, uh, so Andrew, what a so let, let's jump back into you, you. You wrote the first book, and then then the Millionaire Expat. Like, so did this was this becoming like um, was it becoming like a, a a side like a side job for you? Was it was it was the income? Was this like you think? Did you get to the point where I could leave my job? I could just make money from my writing, or, or was it, were you already at this stage, or, or was it just always just a hobby? I want to get the word out, and and you weren't so much thinking about the financial side of it. Well, I was doing enough writing to, and I, and I don't spend a lot. My wife and I aren't, aren't big spenders, but, but I was doing enough writing to, to sustain us anyway with the regular columns that I do. So I write for a, a U.S.-based financial services company called Asset Builder, and I write for them every week. Uh, yeah. And then I write for, uh, you know, I, I, I sell those articles to a Swiss-based brokerage, and then I do produce a, a monthly column for them every week. And then I was writing for the Globe and Mail. So I was keeping my creative juices flowing, Fantastic. With with the traveling, which was nice, because anytime I you know I had a Wi-Fi connection, I had the ability to write and stay creative, and so actually uh, that was that was enough for us to to live and to travel. And in terms of books, the books are just something that I mean, people don't really make money from books. That's that's yeah. one thing that a lot of people don't realize. If a book sells for twenty two ninety five, uh, the author gets about a dollar fifty when you. Know, you know the dust clears on that so so sure. that's uh that's that's one reason why I, I was speaking to somebody recently and and uh and saying no matter what it is don't get a book online for free like you know don't go to one of these services and get a book because you know you have these creative people same with music same with music especially if it's a you know a, someone that's in in many cases they don't earn as much money from their uh their creative endeavors as we often think so yeah ripping them off sure. isn't that isn't necessarily such a good thing. So margins have been really squeezed over time. So nobody really writes a book, including me, for the idea, though, of making money. I mean, the bottom line is that it has to be something that you enjoy doing. And as an educator, it was my way of trying to, to teach. If I end up getting a little bit of money out of it, then that's, then that's awesome. Uh, then, yeah, that's, that's a nice thing. And I do appreciate that. 
Although one, one thing I've noticed recently is that in entrepreneurship, quite a few people self-publishing books and making quite good money out of it. You know, if the, usually like maybe someone like yourself who's already got a bit of a network, you've had a book, and then you decide to self-publish when you've already got an audience, and and that's and that kind of then you can pretty much keep keep all the money, you know, in that. But again, you've got to make sure you get on top of the Amazon algorithms, and you you've got to have a way to promote it. But I have seen that happening with people who are not big writers but making good income from from self-publishing. Yeah, it's a lot more work, I think, to do that. Uh, so I'm a little bit lazy, so it's not something that I wanted to try and do to figure out like the cover and like, get the ISBN number and then get the editor. And obviously, if you want a good polished product, you're going to need some help. And no matter how great the writer is, they're going to need to hire some editor to help them go through and, and do help them to some extent with, you know, you want a decent index and with pagination and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, it's not something that I, in the past, had been interested in doing just because I'm a little bit lazy. <laughs> social media, have, have you leveraged social media? Is that something, you know, as over the years that you've been doing this, kind of letting social media do some of the promotion and also getting connections through that? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I have a website and then um, uh, Facebook at Millionaire Teachers, so it's a Facebook group there, and then uh there was a fellow who put me on as an administrator on uh, a Facebook group for expats and international educators, financial advice. And so I'm able to, you know, without being icky about it, I'm able to advertise like when I do end up writing a book, um, I'm able to put information on there. And so I think uh, I haven't really done a lot in terms of promoting, but I end up, you know, word does end up getting out there. So I end up doing a fair bit of speaking. Actually, a lot yeah. of speaking. I was going to say uh, speaking really and workshops, you know, uh, because obviously when people read the book, then they also like to see the person. Is that something you've also found as a good mm -hmm. supplement? Yeah, and I fell into that by accident because I was giving a lot of free talks. And so I, I really wanted to, to do my best to educate. And so I decided that I would say yes to every request to speak. So I'd said, just, just get me there, get my wife there. We no longer do this. Uh, for several different reasons, but we said yes for, for a long time. To give you an idea, in 2017, uh, I gave 90 talks. That's nine zero talks in 14 different countries. Wow. And it was, uh, and basically it was just like, just get us there. And, and I'll, give, I'll give a free talk. So I often didn't even want to talk about my books. I often didn't even want to like mention that I'd written a book. I didn't want to be that guy who was selling. I just wanted to try to be that pure educator. But what I found, uh, two things. One, it was selfish on my part because my wife was doing a lot of the organizing. And she's well, like, I was just thinking that that's a lot of logistics, emails oh, back and yeah. forth. And yeah. And, and so she said to me too, um, you know, this is work that I'm doing. And in some cases, if we charge, we'll find that we actually do get treated better. So there were some weird examples where I'd show up at a school, people had organized that I've come. And when I first got there, the administration uh, didn't know who I was. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't know to be expecting me. And so it was a, it was a, there were some odd things. And then once we started charging, that all changed, you know, which is odd because you think that you would, uh, somebody was willing to do something for free, you would treat them like gold and more and often, uh, not always, but maybe I'll just say occasionally that really wasn't the case until I started charging. And then once I started charging, they started treating me really well, which is ironic, isn't it? It's just kind of the way we, the way we value things is weird. Yeah, I think exactly right. I think though, I think it was something interesting in what you said. I was making me think that like 
I think when you start something, I think it's great to say yes to everything. Like for example, when I started working with schools, my Google thing, John was actually the first school I worked with. And I said yes to everything. If you remember John, the guy came from Bangkok to the Prague event and I was like, I'm going to Bangkok. I went to Bangkok like a month later, did something, met someone from El Salvador, went to El Salvador. I was just like flying around the world. I wasn't married at the time or anything, but I said yes to everything and didn't make any money out of more than half of these things. You know, sometimes I even lost money, but that the network I built from, from that, you know, has, has helped me since. And it's probably the case with you, even though like, you know, you didn't actually make money from a lot of these, it, you know, first of all, you become a good speaker if you, if you do it a thousand times and, you know, you get to meet a lot of people. And I, I think that can help. I know John, John's a guy who seems to say yes to everything as well. You know, you're always, you know, getting, but I think, I think John, you're a bit more picky nowadays, aren't you? I see, I don't see you. Yeah, I think, you know, for me is, I completely agree with you, Dan. And I, I remember when you started, you were so generous and yeah, you were going a lot of different places, but I think developing a professional learning network or professional uh, community is so important because I can't tell you how many times now not having done anything, people say, oh, you know, through the professional learning network. And so I think, you know, LinkedIn or whatever ecosystem you use can be very powerful if you're in the business of, you know, being a consultant or a workshop lead or even an author. I think that that network is don't underestimate the, the few yeses that you give for free, because at some point, I think it comes back. And Dan, I think you built a huge reputation based on your generosity and people felt there was a lot of trust. They knew you would help them out. And I think, you know, some of these people now are very likely, you know, willing to pay for services based on that previous experience. So I think there's some value to saying yes, but you're right. You have to be careful because at some point you have to be like, well, guess what? Now what I'm going to charge you for, you know? So uh, <laughs> it's, it's how do you transition from saying yes and trying to build that professional learning network? And Definitely. as you said, Andrew, you know, suddenly you have 90 speeches uh, you know, your wife's a hero because she was in the back end dealing with all that. So I yeah. think you have to kind of, how do you filter that and transition to generating that income, but still giving that sense of generosity and, and willing to listen to people and, and people being able to reach out to you. And I think as well, often a lot of educators are, 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 who are very, you know, maybe they're real experts in the field and, and they're often scared to ask for money. It's kind of the mentality of a lot of teachers is, you know, they don't yeah. they think they should be doing it for free. And I, I've known some amazing people that, and I've had to say, look, you should be charging for this. You know, this isn't something you should be doing all the time for free. And I think that's, there's a lot of educators who fall into that trap. Of, not, not a trap. Some of them may be happy doing everything for free, but they, they could be charging for what they do. I think that's it. I think that at our core as educators, we, uh, there's something, there's something in us that wants to give um, and it's to serve and it's to help. And that's really at our core. That's really what we're, we're all about. So yeah, you're right though, Dan, at some point um, it, you, you can end up giving too much and exhausting yourself as well. Yeah, and to that point where it's not sustainable. So if you really want to be helping as many people as possible, create some kind of sustainable model. And, you know, at the schools that I would be teaching at as well, or speaking at as well, I mean, the teachers didn't know I was doing it for free. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Only, only one person in the, and not that that, not that that was really a big deal. Like I, I you know, I wasn't there to, to help toot my own horn and say, I'm doing this for free, but um, yeah, yeah there, there's definitely some interesting, uh, interesting variables associated with all that. Fantastic. Um, Andrew, so could we like, 
is it possible, like just maybe so John and me can get some some help as well. Could you kind of outline a, a few of the basic principles of your investing philosophy? Obviously, you don't have to give away all the secrets of the book. I mean, I, I've read the book, you know, so I think I know I know a lot of it. But do you have any like like high level things that people like, you know, pe people shouldn't get this, these basic things wrong in terms of your philosophy? Yeah, I think the 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 most important aspects are to to be fully diversified, number one. So there's a tendency to try and follow hot stocks, especially yeah. given that we've had a variety of stocks that there are always going to be stocks that are absolutely flying at some stage. And so there's a, a strong tendency to end up chasing past returns and, and chasing yeah. some of those outlier businesses. And we had several of those. We've had several of those over the past seven or eight years. Um, instead of putting your money in and this is serious money. It's not play money. Um, when yeah. people talk about playing the stock market, I say, no, there's no playing involved in it and it's not supposed to be fun. And if it's fun, you're doing it wrong. So the important thing to remember is that boring, your investment yeah. duration is your life is your lifetime. It's your lifetime. It's not this week. It's not this year. It's not five years from now. Your investment duration is your lifetime. And so put science behind this. What does science suggest? As much as we can have economic science, it suggests that the best way to give you the highest statistical odds of success is to own the entire world's market, own the market, yes. own the so literally owning a sliver of virtually every share in the world at the lowest possible cost. And so the way to do that yeah. is with a diversified portfolio of index funds or ETFs. The second element here is to ignore all financial news, ignore it, ignore <laughs> what's happening in ignore what's happening politically, ignore what's happening economically, ignore what's happening in the stock market itself, have that portfolio, close your eyes, close your ears, add money to that portfolio whenever you have it. Don't try to time the market. Don't try to figure out when the best time to add money would be. Don't try and pull money out because you think that you need to take some profits. Think about yeah. your lifetime investment duration. So people often wonder, well, when, when do you sell? The idea here is that when you are no longer working, you sell an inflation-adjusted 4% per year from the portfolio. So assuming you have $100,000, yeah. you can sell $4,000 in the first year. In the second yeah. year, if there's inflation between year one and year two, which typically there is, you sell just a little bit more than $4,000 to match the level of inflation. And you just continue to do this during your retirement duration. So that's the sell strategy. So it's, it's so simple, but the thing that gets in the way uh, most is human emotions, both greed and fear. And as international teachers, we have to put the, the odds in our favor, the evidence-based statistical odds in our favor rather than getting into speculating, um, getting into trying to buy high flying stocks. For us, it's a really serious business. It's not play. It's literally your, uh, it's your financial wellness for your future. So, I mean, I've definitely been guilty of some of the things you talk about. I'm, I'm hugely into the tech world. So I bought, you know, I've, I've, I still own some tech stocks, you know, and I always, but it, like you say, it is, even though I've got, like to think I've got more knowledge than the average person, it's still, a lot of gambling says big macro factors much bigger than what I could predict. Do you, do you ever advise buying individual stocks or only index funds? Only index funds, just keeping yeah. it really simple and then getting on with what's far more important in life, which is spending time thinking about other things, family relationships. 
Because when we buy individual stocks, we are taking a component or becoming to an extent an active manager ourselves. And so yeah. when we're doing that on the side, we are becoming active in our, in our investment policies. And, and when we look at the research on this, a hedge fund manager is an active manager. Uh, yeah. An actively managed mutual fund manager is an active manager and they're professionals. So they look at earnings projections. They get to know the industries that they're focused in really, really well, but yeah. over a lifetime or even over like a 10 year period, the vast majority of them actually underperform the benchmarks of the index funds. Those that outperform the index funds over one 10 year period are typically the same that underperform it during the following 10 year period. So it makes really little sense if you are serious about building financial wellness for your future. It's far easier uh, to have that Zen-like resolve, build that diversified portfolio of indexes uh, and think as little about it as possible and just keep adding money when you have it. And do you, um, I know obviously, some people go for like a growth investing thing where they're looking for the stock to increase. And then I've got a couple of people I know well who are very just hundred percent yield investors. They're focused on, you know, getting income from the stocks. Do you, are you more towards the sort of high yielding stocks or are you just that none of that matters? It's just the gross yield. It's the yield plus growth or, you know, do you, do you not think of it as, as growth or yield? I don't think of it as growth or yield. I just buy a, uh, diversified or I built a diversified portfolio of index funds. So within it, there are value stocks, there are growth stocks, there's just a, a whole plethora of everything within it. And what about what about property? Uh, you know, John and me have got uh, some property. Do you, do you think that's I, I, something in your book you actually think for a lot of people property is a bad investment and you're not always convinced it, it, it's a good one? That's funny you say that because I've never said that. And yet I've never written right. that, yet people have said that to me. Um, much as you have. And I'm like, where does this come yeah. from? <laughs> um, no, I've never said property is a bad investment. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> and I, you know what, Dan? I get that all the time. Uh, yeah. yeah, people say that all the time. No, I don't think... Do you think, Andrew, that's because your focus is so much on these diversified index funds that people assume, because your focus is on that, that property is not something to do. Maybe it's just because most of your attention is on that topic more than maybe property? Yeah, probably. I mean, I've kept something really simple. I mean, the strategy of building a portfolio of ETFs or index funds is super simple. Um, the property component, you know, when somebody asks me, well, what does better, investing in the stock market or investing in properties? And the correct answer is always, nobody knows. It's always yeah. the correct answer. You'll get people who will try and explain math to you and say, well, this will be better going forward, but nobody can see the future. And when you're actually buying... Um, when you're buying a property, you're buying a business. And so not all properties are going to be the same. Not all locations are going to be the same. Not all earnings yields are going to be the same. Not all tenants are going to be sure. the same. Um, not all uh, capital expenditures associated with maintaining a property are going to be the same. So when someone says, is property a good investment? I'm like, well, if, <laughs> that really depends. You know, where, yeah. what your earnings yield is, it literally is like buying a business. And so it can be outstanding as an investment. Um, some people just kind of get lucky and they get into something yeah. and then, you know, the entire Definitely. market really rises and they think they're geniuses. And it's like that with individual stocks too, or with the yeah. market itself, uh, with the stock market itself. But overall, um, I think that if you are intelligently diversifying your portfolio and you do build a couple of revenue properties into what your portfolio would be, I think this is not a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. I think the, the great thing about property I like is you, you can borrow money 
easily and very cheaply. You know, that's kind of the, the, the unique thing about it, I guess, is that, you know, very low interest rates and very easy to, to get a mortgage. I think that's, mm-hmm. that kind of is what I like about it in terms of it as an investment, it, which means it is leverage, which that also carries risks. But over a long time horizon, you know, I think it's, I mean, I like it personally, but again, I haven't done the maths as much as you have on, on, on it. Oh, it's lovely to get someone else to buy your property for you. I mean, that's lovely. And yeah, so you're, exactly. You're yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and I and I like like the idea of multiplexes over single family homes and and apartment blocks. And so, like when you look at what really really rich people do, really rich people don't go around buying single family homes. Not the really yeah. rich people, you know, because the yield is too low. So when I say yield, yield is a, a division between how much income you're getting each year and what you actually pay for the property overall. If you were to buy it outright, so you do a calculation of yield on that. And so if you look at like a commercial building with a variety of different tenants, the yield will always be higher than a single family home in that same location. So if yeah. possible, it also reduces risk. So if you buy a building that has three units in it, you have three sources of income and you only have one roof to maintain and four walls on the outside. And so capital expenditures per dollar that you receive is going to be higher with a multiplex versus with, you know, just a, a single, a single entity or a single family home. But it's uh, yeah, it's a great idea overall. If you can get somebody to actually pay for that house for you, you know, you get these tenants and ideally if you get more than one, so you have multiple sources of revenue. So yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. I'm a fan of real estate and, uh, and done properly. I think it's outstanding. <laughs> Andrew, do you remember in, at some point, a lot of international school teachers were taking out yen loans or Swiss franc loans on houses. And then, of course, the money market crashed and then they ended up with these big debts. Were you familiar with that when that happened, like in the 2000s? I don't know if you were. I remember quite a few stories of teachers having done that. You know, I wasn't familiar with that. What I was familiar with, John, was I think it's a very human tendency is that everybody at um, so many people uh, at Singapore American School, for example, in 2005, six, and 2007 were wanting to get into U.S. homes and leverage themselves to buy U.S. properties that they could then rent out. And when I asked them, well, why do you want to get into these U.S. homes? Why are you buying them? They'd say, because the prices are going up. Uh, and then, of course, there was the crash of 2008, 2009, where many of these same homes ended up being worth almost half of what they were worth in 2007. And what was really strange, and this is just human nature, so it's not strange at all. It just shows how irrational we are as a species. Nobody was coming to me and saying, should I buy homes? I want to buy a home. Uh, it was an odd thing because they were cheap, so people didn't want them. They'd recently fallen in price, so people didn't want them. People would speculate that they would fall even further, so they didn't want them. They didn't do a, a true business analysis on them. And so it is really fascinating how it's often like, I like Warren Buffett's mantra, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. So uh, my wife and I are going to, uh, just through a, a variety of different circumstances, we are sort of having to sell a, an apartment in Victoria, British Columbia. And, and it's, you know, it's worth almost double what we paid for it uh, five years ago or four years ago. Uh, so it's just had this extraordinary growth. And without us even advertising it, people are falling over themselves. Friends are falling over themselves to try to buy this property. And why do they want it? They want it because it's risen a lot in value recently. Um, and that, that may or may not be a good reason. Generally speaking, that's typically not a good reason to buy it. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy something that hasn't risen a lot in value, but that is not the reason to buy it. And thinking that because it's risen so much, 
it, it will continue to rise. So I like to look at property as in terms of the business yield, look at it as a business. What does it cost and what revenue is being generated from it and let any capital appreciation on the real estate be icing on the cake. Excellent. Andrew, I was, uh, the other side of things you alluded to earlier was obviously what you earn and what you spend. And, and you mentioned that, you know, you were, you're quite frugal. I mean, I think John and me are quite frugal in some ways. I've, I've got some expensive hobbies, like spending time in the mountains and stuff. Do you, so what, like, how much of, how much of, how much you spend is, is, is a, is a factor in, you know, retiring wealthy? Oh, it's huge. Um, like living below your means. When we look at research that, that Thomas Stanley did for his life, over his lifetime, he's the guy that wrote uh, Millionaire Next Door. And so yeah, he studied America's wealthy from 1973 right up until his death in 2015. And, and he found that, yeah, dramatically, it's, it's living be below your means. It's not picking the right investments. It's not investing properly. It's, it's mostly, you know, it doesn't matter how well you invest if you don't have a lot of money to invest or you're spending everything that you're earning. So, you know, you're investing $100 a month, you could be the best investor ever, but um, $100 a month isn't a lot of money to be putting away, especially for an international teacher who's not going to be getting the defined benefit pension, may not be getting social security or maxing out on that. So yeah, that element of, uh, of frugality, not cheapness, but frugality is really, really important. And there's a distinction between being cheap and being frugal. So frugal people can be very generous with other people. And that's, sure. it, that, that's a differentiation between frugality and cheap. It's also important, I think, to, to, to recognize where we get our pleasures when it comes to spending. So you know, during the year 2020, when I was in Victoria, there was so much that I wanted to share about the science on happy spending. Uh, somebody once yeah. said to me, well, Andrew, you know, you were super frugal when you were in your 20s, so you, you mustn't have really enjoyed life. And, and, I, and I said to him, no, I... I, I really enjoyed life, but what I did recognize was I recognized that material acquisitions typically don't boost my life satisfaction, but experiences do. Actually doing Definitely. things, going places, sure. giving, uh, giving money away, donating. These are things that, that seem to um, really inspire me. And I realized over time that, uh, and I think too, when you're writing about finances, you can, in the eyes of people who don't know you, you can be seen as somebody who is just interested in money or just interested in the bottom line, uh, the financial bottom line. But the idea of financial independence and financial education isn't necessarily about acquiring the most money. It's about trying to live the best life that you can. And so yeah. with the book balance that I wrote, I wanted to see well, what does the science suggest with respect to actually spending money for life satisfaction. And so, you know, I realized when I looked into the research, it wasn't, it wasn't just me. We get used, to the things we buy so you know if you want a brand new bmw or a brand new maserati or a really big mansion on the hill that thing just becomes a thing to you uh after time like we gain it's it's called hedonic adaptability the things that you thing. own end up owning you as from the fight club yeah 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 that can be it yeah but it's uh yeah it's it, you get used to whatever it is that you own and it no longer becomes special yeah that's 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 great it's i, I guess as people can't underestimate how much like not having financial stress frees your mind up to be able to enjoy life as well. You know, if you're not, when you know, meet people who are in deep debt or have made some terrible decisions, like the stress that brings, I mean, if, if you've got the absence of a stress, you don't notice it because you don't have it, but it, but it is a, a huge thing that people take for granted. I think the other side I mean, to this is 
a lot of international school teachers have said prevent themselves from having a good time because they're all saving for this infamous retirement and then life will start. And, ah, yeah. That's and I, I have met so many international school educators that basically don't go out in the local culture, basically go home every time. And they're just hoarding, 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 because when they retire, then they'll do everything. The reality is life is very short, as we know. It's true. And exactly. Tomorrow you might not be here. Bless your heart. We hope everybody's healthy and well. <laughs> I'm not promoting anything yeah. here. But I think that mindset that you bring up, Andrew, is so important is, you know, you really need to be careful about getting too obsessed about it. And I love, love your approach about the kind of index diversified portfolio. You said you want to be spending time with family, with, you know, it's not about suddenly becoming a broker because you have a lot of money. And I think that's so powerful what you said. The, the other thing too is that I think, you know, as we try to save money and we have this image, we need a lot of money to be happy. The WHO actually has an index where they have a kind of a window of how much somebody actually needs. They did some correlation between the happiness index and income. And at some point after you earn a certain amount, you actually aren't any happier. I think it's like $80,000 a year or something, isn't it? Something like What's that? I think it's like $80,000 a year or something, isn't it? There's some number like that. I think it was much don't... less. I think it was 27500 Was it? Oh, really? I think. And I think after 80000 there is no evidence. I'm. We shouldn't be quoting numbers that we can't <laughs> fact check in this time of fake news. Yeah. Let's just well, I, go with the idea that money doesn't bring happiness. How you're, about you're, that? you're exactly right, John. And I can actually help with that because it was the research that I looked into with when I was writing the book Balance. And so it was originally, it was um, Richard Easterlin who ended up finding, he did a, a national study in the United States, and, and it's known as the Easterlin paradox. And he found that income increased, or happiness increased with income, but only to a certain point. And so when you didn't have enough food in your table and you, you didn't have, you know, safe place to live and, and decent shelter, safe shelter, then yeah, more money can make your life dramatically better therefore making thereby making you actually happier but there's that point and it's exactly what you're talking about it's the satiation point the point at which income an added level of income does not increase your overall life satisfaction and that's what it's really all about is life satisfaction that's yeah. why we do anything that we do ultimately why do you raise your children the way you're you're raising your children ultimately if you keep digging with that question It'll make you feel good. You think it, it. You think it's the right thing to do. Why are you giving to a charity? Why are you running a marathon? Why are you going to the bathroom right now? You know, really, it's all about when we keep digging with that question. Why? It boils down to that concept of life satisfaction. And Purdue University did an interesting study where they took Richard Easterlin's type of research, but they went international to 136 different countries. And what they found was that uh, the happiness satiation point it was different in every country because it was relative to the cost of living in the country and so it was also uh it was also fascinating that they found that there was a point at which happiness actually started to drop above a certain income level now, this was really interesting because it was consistent in north america it was consistent in eastern europe western europe uh latin america africa the middle east every part of the world had not just a satiation point of income but a point at which 
beyond a certain income level, life satisfaction drops. And the theories behind this, the, the Purdue University researchers determined that the theories behind this are twofold. One was that uh, people with really high incomes typically end up with high stress jobs. And so there's that element, yeah. the stress associated with it, the high responsibility, often the long working hours. Now, when you start to take the stress plus the long working hours that are associated with this job, you start taking away from things like sleep, you take away from things like exercise, and most importantly, you take away from time with people that you love, time yeah. away from family. You so take true. that away, and that's the key to happiness there. That's the, the relationships. When you look at Harvard's study of adult development, uh, it's, a, it's an eight-plus decade-long study that tried to determine what is it that boosts life satisfaction more than any other variable, and it's the strength of your relationships. Nice. I mean, that, that's so true. And, and uh, it's funny how you reacted when I talked about, you know, people that I've seen in, uh, hoarding for, you know, their whole job search is about how much money I can save so I can retire early or this whole thing. I'm going to retire at 40 and, you know, they work 90 hours, 120 hours a week and I'm just miserable and get divorced, whatever. I I'm exaggerating here, but I think it's so interesting to hear that research. I'm going to be very rude. I actually have to jump off and go to a meeting and I apologize, but I'm, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for letting me jump in. And Dan too, apologies for coming in and out like this. But No, well, John, it's actually it's a good place to, to finish it here as well. I've got to, I'm actually talking of meeting people. I'm meeting my wife. We're going to go out. We've got, we've got a babysitter tonight. So we're going to go out for tacos. See? Life satisfaction, <laughs> focus, Andrew, relationships. Exactly. Hey, I think, so, I think you guys might, I think you guys might like this. Yeah, where, where can people buy the book? Tell us about the, the book Balance. Is, is it out already and where can people Yeah, get it? it's been out for about two months. So you can buy it um, basically anywhere you can buy books. Cool. You can buy that. So, so Balance any, by uh, Andrew any online retail outlet. Yep, yeah, that's it. And I think John, John very specifically, you really like this um, based on some of the things that you were talking about because it is all about a balance, knowing that life yep. is finite it's the only time is the only non-renewable resource that we have. Yeah. And so no, none of us know when it's going to end. So we have to live for the day. We have to live for the day, but have an eye on tomorrow. And that's the balance that's required. Yeah. Yeah. There's another book step-by-step at step, Arthur C. Brooks. I don't know if you know Arthur C. Brooks. No, I don't. He was, uh, he kind of had that, you know, high flyer CEO, big companies, and then had a burnout. And he wrote a book about the second half of his life where he started looking at things very differently. Similar idea. It's called Step by Step. But uh, mm, I, mm. I love uh, the, the idea of having a book on balance. And you're so true is about being balanced, but also making sure you're looking at tomorrow a bit because tomorrow does come. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you very much. Great to talk. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, John.